Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 176, The Mac Earned a Diploma. Hi, I'm Neil. This episode marks a milestone. This is the start of season seven of the Above Avalon podcast. I launched the podcast in November 2014. I know some of you have been here from the start. So it's been six years. It doesn't seem like six years. It's been a very fast six years. Whenever I celebrate an anniversary like this, it it does come off as bittersweet. On one hand, you do want to see podcasts find sustainability. It's a good thing for podcasting in general, for the industry. And that's not really happening as much. You do see a lot of podcasts, but they're not sticking around. They may get a few episodes, then for whatever reason, that's it. They go silent. But I'm happy, I'm fortunate that with Above Avalon, it's completely different. Above Avalon is now entering the seventh season, and as those seasons increase, the number of podcasts that have been around for that long continues to decline. And it's something that always sticks with me. So whenever I celebrate an anniversary, I do want to take the opportunity to thank all of you for being there, for listening to the podcast, for making this possible. And here is to season seven. Unlike what's found in TV land or video land, there is no hiatus between seasons. There's no six-month, 12-month break. Instead, we are ready to go with the new season. Today's episode is going to be focused on the Mac. This is a product category that continues to be very controversial. In some ways, every one of Apple's product categories has its own controversies, but the Mac is at the top of the list. And the primary reason is that this is a product that's been around the longest. So you have on one hand, people using the Mac for decades. On the other hand, you have people who are entering the Mac install base for the first time. They're buying their first Mac. It is very difficult to keep both of those parties, both groups, pleased. You're going to eventually have situations, and I think we've seen this pretty clearly over the past couple years, where Apple wants to go one way, some Mac users are going to disagree. They're going to get angry. They're going to turn to Twitter. Given that dynamic, whenever Apple has major Mac news, it's always interesting to see how the reactions are trending. And we have no shortage of reaction when it comes to the Mac transitioning to Apple Silicon. For some people, this transition was very unlikely. They just did not see Apple doing it. They usually had their long list of reasons, some of which were it was too risky, there were too many problems, why would Apple dedicate so many resources to just the Mac? But interestingly, those same people now are among the most bullish about the Mac's future. These individuals are comparing the transition to Apple Silicon as a paradigm shift in computing. Wow. (laughs) I wouldn't go that far. Interestingly, I wonder if these people look at wearables as a paradigm shift in computing. I would say probably not. The best place to really dive into this discussion is to look at the weird environment that Apple is announcing this transition in. The iPad is seeing more than twice the number of new users as the Mac. Within two years, the number of people wearing an Apple Watch will equal the number of people owning a Mac. Approximately 90% of Apple users 
don't use and probably never will use a Mac. All of those statements are derived from my own estimates. It's tempting to listen to those statements and think that the Mac has lost its luster. However, 2020 was a record fiscal year for the Mac when looking at revenue and the number of new users, it was near a record high. How do we reconcile those two different worlds? They seem completely opposite of each other. This is why the Mac's transition to Apple Silicon is so intriguing. In a number of ways, it ends up being bigger than the Mac. And said, we have implications that touch Apple's entire product strategy. The Mac is seeing momentum by being true to itself, instead of trying to be something that it's not. With a transition to Apple Silicon, the product category is now benefiting from lessons Apple learned from more popular devices aimed at the mass market. We're talking about mobile devices, wearables. For a quick recap of the Mac's transition to Apple Silicon, we have to go back to this past June at WWDC. That's when Apple unveiled this multi-year transition to Apple Silicon. We can think of that as the first step or the first phase. Last week, Apple held a product event, a virtual product event, titled One More Thing. And that was sort of the second step or the second stage of this transition. That is when Apple announced or unveiled the first wave of Mac hardware that would take advantage of Apple Silicon. Three models saw updates, the 13-inch MacBook Air, the 13-inch MacBook Pro, and the Mac Mini. One of the more interesting takeaways from both WWDC and last week's product event ended up being pretty subtle. While Apple technically announced a Mac transition, the Mac ended up taking a back row seat to the share power and capability found with Apple Silicon and Apple's decade-long bet on designing its own chips. In a weird way, it was almost as if the Mac opened people's eyes to what was going on with Apple designing its own chips, even though we see the byproduct with iPhones, with iPads, with wearables. It took the Mac to do some of that reawakening. The MacBook Air, Apple's best-selling Mac, was included in the first wave of hardware transitioning to Apple Silicon. The well-known model had one of the more memorable unveilings in Apple history when it was pulled out of a manila envelope by Steve Jobs that was on stage at Macworld 2008. The MacBook Air's design was industry-leading. Johnny Ive and Apple's industrial design group had utilized a new unibody architecture that was eventually brought to the entire Mac portable line. I think that's a big reason why 12 years later, the MacBook Air still feels refreshing. It was as if 2008 was like yesterday. While the MacBook Air's thinness was the top feature in 2008, a MacBook Air powered by Apple Silicon is all about performance, longer battery life, and quietness because it doesn't have a fan. That 12-inch MacBook that Apple unveiled in 2015 and discontinued four years later ended up being a little bit ahead of its time. It is telling that Apple didn't see the need to change the MacBook Air's design 
despite the fact that it is now being powered by Apple Silicon. That fact got me thinking. The Mac's Apple Silicon transition is akin to the Mac graduating and entering a new phase in life. A graduation is an acknowledgement of someone acquiring a certain amount of knowledge and experience. It's not an end point. It's a starting point. The individual can take that knowledge and then use it to solve future problems. A similar dynamic is found with Macs powered by Apple Silicon. The Mac now has a new tool set that it can rely on to tackle future problems. This is why I'm not looking at this transition as some kind of pivot or some kind of reawakening. I I don't think that really captures what's happening here. Because both of those descriptions, they imply that the Mac is going to fundamentally change in terms of its identity. And I don't see that. Returning to this idea of the transition being like a graduation, it's not that people become someone different after going through a graduation. Instead, there is sort of an evolution of thought. There's an evolution in how one embraces the world or how one thinks of the world differently. Prior to this year's WWDC, reaction in some tech circles was cool towards the idea of Apple transitioning the Mac to its own silicon. In reality, their transition was always a question of when, not if. The transition would not only give Apple the kind of control over the Mac that it yearned for, but more importantly, Apple Silicon would open new doors to push the Mac forward in ways that simply weren't possible with Intel. This brings us to a broader point when looking at Apple's product development. With Apple Silicon, Apple took lessons learned from personal devices such as Apple Watches, iPhones, and iPads to help push less personal devices like the Mac forward. This ends up being a core tenet of the grand unified theory of Apple products. We saw early iterations of this with Mac features like the Touch Bar, Touch ID, the T1 and T2 chips. Those additions, those features were the clues that an eventual transition to Apple Silicon would take place. Taking a closer look at Apple leveraging lessons learned from personal devices to then push less personal devices forward, I gave the dynamic a name, the Apple Innovation Feedback Loop. In this week's article over at AboveAvalon.com titled The Max Graduation, I have a chart that depicts the Apple Innovation Feedback Loop. And I would say this is one of the more important charts when it comes to product development within Apple. If we are looking at how does Apple approach each one of its product categories in terms of where it wants to take that product in the future, and more importantly, how is it going to get there in the future, this chart contains some answers. It's a pretty simple chart as well. There's only four parts. There's only four stages or pieces to this positive feedback loop. The first phase worth going over is fundamentally related to the grand unified theory of Apple products, and that is when you look at iPhones and iPads, they are designed to handle some of the tasks that are currently given to the Mac. We can then proceed to look at wearables like the Apple Watch 
that is designed to handle some tasks currently given to the iPhone and iPad. So, so far, those seem to be part of the grand unified theory of Apple products. But there's more. There's something else going on here. It doesn't just end with the Apple Watch. Instead, what Apple is doing is they're taking lessons learned from a device like Apple Watch and using it to push iPhones and iPads forward. They are then taking lessons learned from mobile devices to push the boundaries of a computer found with Macs, both portables and desktops. That is very important because what Apple is doing is they're trying to harness the power found with making technology more personal to then push forward devices that may be fundamentally not as personal. And again, when we talk about making technology more personal, that doesn't mean just products that are closer to us, like literally on our bodies. Instead, making technology more personal is referring to lowering the barriers between technology and the user. Said another way, we are able to get more out of technology without having technology take over our lives. That's been Apple's mission since its founding. This raises a question. If Apple is leveraging its ability to make technology more personal by taking lessons learned from devices like the Apple Watch and using that to push the boundaries of computers that are less personal, like the Mac. Well, where's the feedback loop? How does that then help a device like the Apple Watch? If Apple can use lessons learned from wearables and mobile devices to push the Mac forward, by extension, that then helps the iPhone and iPad because those devices were fundamentally designed to handle some tasks given to the Mac. Another way of thinking about this is that if Apple is successful, in helping push the Mac forward, in making that a more capable computer. That will then help the iPhone and iPad, since one of their missions is to handle a subset of the workflows that are given to the Mac. This is very similar to the idea that for the Apple Watch to do well, we actually want to increase our reliance and usage of the iPhone. That may seem a little counterintuitive, If we want to push the Apple Watch forward, wouldn't we bet on the iPhone becoming less important? The thing is, the Apple Watch is designed to handle some of the tasks that we currently give to the iPhone and iPad. So if we are giving the iPhone and iPad more tasks to handle, more workflows to handle, that is inevitably going to eventually help the Apple Watch. It's the same dynamic when looking at the Mac versus mobile devices. If you're able to push the most powerful computer forward, you then end up bringing all of the devices below it, the more personal devices that are located below it, forward as well. The end result is a positive feedback loop in terms of innovation. That is why I'm calling it the Apple Innovation Feedback Loop. At this point in the discussion, I want to turn to the future. What's next for the Mac? The Mac, having graduated thanks to Apple Silicon, is now in a much stronger position to navigate a world being overrun with iPhones, iPads, and an expanding line of wearable devices that are designed for different parts of the body. We already see wearables for the wrists and ears, and we will soon see wearables for the eyes. 
Based on my install-based estimates for various Apple product categories, as of the end of fiscal 2020, it's clear that the Mac hasn't been for everyone. The Mac install base stands at 130 million. The iPad install base is 330 million. The iPhone just recently surpassed a billion users. That was the topic in episode 175. All of those install based estimates are my own. I will link in the show notes the daily updates that went over each one. I talked about the calculations, my methodology, how exactly I came up with those estimates. There are seven times more people using iPhones than Macs. There are more than twice the number of people using iPads than Macs. Some think that Apple Silicon will dramatically change these ratios by increasing the Mac's addressable market. I think caution is needed in running too far with that kind of thinking. The value found with Apple Silicon isn't that it will turn the Mac into a fundamentally different product. We should not assume Macs will become touch-first devices. Apple already sells touch-first or touch-based computers. They're called iPhones and iPads. For Apple, the goal isn't to take fundamentally different product categories and form factors and converge them for no other reason than that they can. A far more challenging endeavor is to resist those calls, often coming from the most loyal users, and instead stay true to a form factor's design. These past two weeks, a number of people have reached out to me regarding the idea of the iPad versus the Mac. And if we now have Macs powered by Apple Silicon, doesn't that mean the iPad is in trouble, and particularly the iPad Pro? And I think what people are sort of looking at this as is, does the iPad Pro and MacBook Air kind of do the same thing? Is it, is it a focus on the same type of user? Why wouldn't Apple converge the two over time? I think that's a fair question. My response is that we have to consider workflows. So when researching this week's article, what I did was I took the macOS product line. So it starts with the MacBook Air, went all the way up to the Mac Pro. And I took iOS and iPad OS, and I did the iPhone SE all the way to the iPad Pro. Once I created these two product lines, I then positioned them on a spectrum that was all about workflows. So on one end, I have more personal workflows, and on the other end, I have more demanding workflows. And by the way, if you want to see this visually, just go to this week's article over at AboveAvalon.com. I do have a table that depicts this, and I think it would be helpful. The point is, when you think about workflows and you look at all these devices, what ends up happening is you realize there is overlap that exists between iOS, iPadOS, and macOS when it comes to handling the same workflows. Where does that overlap exist? At the high end of the iOS, iPadOS line and the low end of the macOS line. Some people may say, wait a second, if a MacBook Air an iPad Pro can handle some of the same workflows. Won't that mean they eventually merge into another? Isn't the iPad Pro's magic keyboard a sign of this upcoming merge? What about touch-based Macs? Those seem inevitable in this type of merging. There are a few holes found in the logic of that kind of thinking. Even though Mac portables and some iPads may handle 
similar workflows. That doesn't mean that both devices should lose their core identity. And this goes back to the chart that I created. I didn't put iOS, iPadOS, and macOS devices on the same line. I didn't put them as the same category. I kept them distinct from each other, separate. iOS, iPadOS was a little bit lower than macOS. And that's because they are different from each other. It's not the same. The iPad doesn't move away from being a touch-based computer simply because a keyboard can be attached to it, or an Apple Pencil can be used to take notes and sketch a drawing. A MacBook Pro doesn't embrace a touch-first interface just because Big Sur has similar elements to iOS and iPadOS. This is why I think we should expect Apple to take what makes the Mac special for 130 million people and accentuate those items, namely a screen that tilts while always being attached to a dedicated keyboard. While both the screen and keyboard will likely see their fair share of changes in the future, including possibly sharing a foldable display. The dynamic fun of using a keyboard permanently connected to a screen would remain. Where does that leave the iPad? Well, the iPad would remain touch first with a range of productivity accessories like dedicated keyboards. Macs powered by Apple Silicon could embrace multi-touch and foldable displays, but in a dedicated area of the machine, possibly where one's fingers are likely to always be found. I'm thinking of the area between the touch bar and, say, the lower fifth of the screen. There's some intrigue found with including a flexible display, and the whole point of that would be taking real estate that currently isn't really being used and leveraging it to help people with their workflows. Such a product may seem underwhelming to some. Maybe the word legacy will come to mind for others. There is nothing inherently wrong with a product being classified as legacy, as long as that product doesn't jeopardize Apple's ambition and efforts with new platforms and paradigm shifts. Such a risk was detailed in the above Avalon article, the Mac is turning into Apple's Achilles heel, which I published back in 2017. Apple management has spent the past few years trying to convince Mac users that the Mac's future has never been brighter. Some Pro users may end up disappointed with where Apple will and won't take the Mac. However, it is a positive sign that Apple has remained focused on pushing forward with new platforms aimed at lowering the barrier between technology and people while allowing the Mac to be true to itself. The Mac has been given a diploma. We can refer to that diploma as maybe the M1 diploma in terms of the M1 chip. With diploma in hand, the Mac can now truly stand next to iPhones, iPads, and wearables. The key for Apple is ensuring that the Mac doesn't lose itself within that crowd. That the Mac doesn't forget how it got to where it is today. Instead, the Mac can take lessons it's already learned, look at what's going on around it with all these other more popular, more personal devices, and come up with a way to stand out from the crowd. That's going to do it for today's episode. If you enjoy this type of analysis and perspective and you want more of it more frequently, I think you'd be very interested in becoming an Above Avalon member 
and receiving my daily updates. These are daily emails. They're all about Apple. Each is about 2,000 words and typically covers two to three stories. To give you a feel for the wide variety of topics covered in these daily updates, just between the period that this episode was recorded and episode 175 came out, there were 16 daily updates. We talked about everything from Apple earnings to Apple's product event, takeaways from Apple's 10K, the U.S. election, Apple industrial designers talking about new products, Disney earnings, Spotify's earnings, the new App Store small business program in which Apple is cutting its revenue share for small businesses from 30% to 15%, Warren Buffett cutting his Apple stake, and the list goes on. So we do cover quite a number of topics. To become a member and receive these updates directly in your inbox throughout the week, just head on over to aboveavalon.com and then go to the membership page. There are two membership options available. It's either $20 per month or $200 per year. There is an archive available, so you can go back and read previously sent updates. That archive now has more than 1,000 daily updates. It's probably closer to 1,100 at this point. Members also have the option of receiving the daily updates in audio form. This makes it possible to consume the daily updates beyond your screens. So you can listen to the updates in your car, while you're out for a walk or run, or simply working around the house or the yard. The ability to offer the daily updates in audio form is made possible by a private podcast that's called Above Avalon Daily. So you can listen to this in your favorite podcast players, including Apple Podcasts and Overcast. The setup process for listening to the Above Avalon Daily podcast is very simple. I like to think of it as it is industry-leading in terms of its simplicity. There is no need to create a separate login, password. I use Transistor to handle all the behind-the-scenes mechanics. You don't have to create a profile with them. In the vast majority of cases, there is no need to even copy or paste a link or RSS feed. Again, all of that is available as a podcast add-on that you can attach to your membership. And that add-on costs $10 per month or $100 per year. I launched that member-only podcast three months ago. And since then, I've done 50 episodes with more than 12 hours of audio. And so if you enjoyed this podcast, I think you really would enjoy listening to the Above Avalon Daily Podcast. I am proud to say that Above Avalon is fully sustained by memberships. One reason that this podcast is now entering its seventh season is because of the continued support from Above Avalon members. So big thank you goes out to members. And if you are planning on becoming an Above Avalon member in the future, I give you an early welcome and an early thank you. With that, I will conclude today's episode. I will talk to you all later.